Well, we just finished going through Philippians, five months of walking through Philippians, and so today we begin a short, only three-part sermon series on evangelism. Now, you might be wondering, if you put up that series slide, why there's feet on the evangelism series slide, and it's because, and maybe you've already made this connection, uh, there's a connection to be made in Scripture between feet and evangelism. In Romans 10, 15, where Paul writes, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Of course, Paul's not saying in Romans 10, 15 that the best foot models are going to be those who share the gospel. He's, he's not promising a free pedicure to those who willingly go and share the good news about Jesus. No, what Paul is saying here, the point that he's making in this passage in Romans 10.15 is that because salvation comes from hearing the gospel, the feet of those who go and share the gospel become figuratively beautiful before God and those who hear the gospel and believe the gospel because it's their feet that carry them to places where they can share the most beautiful news that could ever be shared. Jesus has died for sinners and been raised from the dead. And so, with that in mind, that's why we've got feet on the evangelism sermon series. And I think it's a great picture of the, the reality that evangelism, rightly understood, should just be an ordinary overflow of the Christian life. And we're going to talk more about that. So if you would, please turn in your Bible or the Pew Bible to 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 15. In the Pew Bible below the seats in front of you, you'll find this on page 965. This is going to be the main passage for all three of these sermons on evangelism. We're going to be looking at many other passages, but each week a portion of 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 15 will serve as our main text, our starting place, and then we'll go off from there, but then we'll come back to this passage. My focus this morning is going to be only on the first six verses, but, but I think it's good for us to have all of these verses in mind, and we'll read them each week, even as we focus on parts of it. Now, I'm only going to give a little bit of context. One of the great benefits of preaching through a book of the Bible is that we start with the context. We think about, you know, who's writing this and why they're writing it and, and some of the, the main issues that we're going to be addressing. And that helps us to understand and rightly apply that passage. But this morning, we're going to, we're going to not get into all of that. I'll just give you this. This is from a portion of 2 Corinthians in which Paul is giving a defense of his apostolic ministry. So there's going to be some differences between what Paul is saying about his own apostolic ministry and our ministry as it goes with evangelism. However, as you'll see and we, as I hope to make clear as we make our way through this passage, there's a whole lot in this passage that addresses the matter of evangelism. It's going to shed a whole lot of light for us as a church on what it means to be an evangelistic church. And so I think it's a great passage for us to sit in, to start with, and to come back to as we consider evangelism. So 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 15. <coughs> Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God." 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is God's word for God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. Now let's pray for God's help in these things. God, we are your people, the redeemed of the Lord. And it is so good. It is our heart's desire to adore and praise you because we know you have opened our eyes so that we see you as the one who is most glorious, the triune God of the Bible who has made a way for us to be adopted by you. And now we, out of joy, not of, out of duty, but out of delight, we worship you. We want to treasure you this morning for you are worthy of all of our praise, all of our honor, everything that we have. You're awesome. You're beautiful. You're glorious. You're good. We know this not simply because our heads tell us these truths, which our heads do, but because we have experienced your grace, your love, your mercy, your goodness. We know you because you have chosen to make yourself known to us. Father, in light of who you are and your greatness and our desire to worship you, we confess that, that too often we make our lives about us when our lives are to be living sacrifices pleasing to you. Our lives are to be for you, aiming to make much of Christ, enjoy more of Christ with one another and with others. Father, we confess that as we think about evangelism, oftentimes we have, we have set it aside. We have not made it a priority. We have sought to avoid evangelism often rather than pursue opportunities to proclaim your greatness. Father, help us. As we make our way through this series and this passage, uh, do what only you can do in your love and kindness. Cause us not to experience shame, to not think mainly about what could have been or what we should have done, but, but about Jesus. Help us to think less of ourselves and more of you and about you. We don't want it to be about us. We don't want to think mainly about ourselves. We want to think more about you. And out of the overflow that we have in love for you, we want to share the gospel. 
we thank you for being a gracious and patient, loving God. That though oftentimes we have kept our mouths shut when we should have opened them and talked to people about Jesus, you are patient and kind. And even now, as we consider evangelism together as a church, you are willing, you are more than able to work in our hearts, to reveal things that need to be addressed so that we would more lovingly and passionately and winsomely share the gospel with others and with one another. And we thank you for your patience with us. Lord, we want to lift up our brothers and sisters that are here, that are not here this morning and across the world and in the universal church who are struggling, who are suffering, whether that be physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Lord, be their rock as you are their rock. Let them experience this morning, wherever they might be, here or somewhere else, the greatness of the rock, Jesus Christ. Remind them of your promises, of your love for them in Christ. And I pray that you would sustain them and that they would use whatever is going on in their lives as a vessel to display your glory and that they would trust you and you would increase their faith and their joy in Jesus even as they struggle. And Father, now we ask that you would use this word to go forth, that you would overcome my own deficiencies as a preacher and you would serve us your word. Feed us by your truth in your word. May your spirit go forth in our hearts and make us more like Jesus in all for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The word evangelism is an exciting, adventurous, and even inviting word because it reminds us, church, that God has called us who he has saved by his grace through faith in Christ to play an exciting adventurous part in what he is doing in the world. He is saving lost, rebellious, hopeless, and hell-bound sinners just like all of us once were all through the cross. And evangelism is a word that reminds us that we have been invited to join in this great, exciting work that God is doing in the world in saving sinners. It's exciting. Are you excited about evangelism? I don't see a lot of excitement on your faces And I think I know why. Because as exciting as the word evangelism should be, and and maybe it is to, to some of you, if we're being honest, for many of us Christians, the thought of actually evangelizing real people, people that we live next to, people that we work next to, people that we live with, people that we go to parties with, people that we play on sports teams with, that thought, that thought can be overwhelming, intimidating, Some of us might even describe it as a little bit scary. This struggle with evangelism can be traced back to any number of things or a combination of different things. We might have a wrong understanding of evangelism. We've set ourselves up to fail. We think it it has to look like this. It has to be like this. It, It must result in this. And it sets us up to fail. We might think that in order to evangelize, we have to be really good debaters. We, we've got to have read the, the most current apologetic works, books that, that teach us how to defend the faith, argue against certain beliefs that contradict the gospel, that, that deny the existence of God. We, we've, we've got to be ready to go toe-to-toe with Richard Dawkins. Some of us has this, have this picture of, of evangelism in mind. Or we just really need to be really intelligent. We have to be in the, the upper 
upper 10% of, of the class academically because we need to be prepared to answer every single question they have, not just about the gospel, about God, about the problem of evil, whatever it might be. We think, man, if I tell them this, they're a really intelligent person and they might come back with this argument or that argument and I, I can't do it because I don't have a good enough answer. They're, they're going to come back with this and, and so you don't evangelize. Or we might think that that only those who have the gift of evangelism, Scripture talks about the evangelist, those who are gifts to the church and that they are full-time evangelists and they have this certain gift. And, and only if you have this gift and you don't have it uh, should you evangelize, so you don't. Now, even if we have a right view of evangelism and all those matters, there are other factors that come into play that might keep us from evangelizing. Some of us have had terrible, brutal, bad experiences trying to evangelize. You know, I, I remember at, at different times going and, and we in, in college, we would go dorm to dorm. We had this evangelism group. Uh, I was part of the evangelism team and we would go and, and knock on doors and, and there's some really bad experiences. People slamming the door, people, yeah, you're in my class. You believe this? You're stupid. I mean, just, just difficult experiences. Maybe we've tried to evangelize and we've stumbled on our words. We've fumbled the gospel ball. We've dropped it completely. We, we've made no sense. We leave a conversation thinking, I did more damage than I did anything good in that conversation and we feel foolish. Or maybe it's that we had a, a very awkward and painful experience being evangelized too before we, we were saved. And we've vowed to never ever make somebody feel that way that we felt when somebody was evangelizing uh, us. We might refrain from evangelism because we don't want to cause a conflict in a relationship, we, we fear losing a valued relationship with somebody. Others of us are just shy. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. We, we struggle to talk about the weather. Now you're talking about telling people about Jesus, calling them to, to turn from their sin, repent and trust in, in Christ to save them. And that's a scary thought for those who are especially shy and struggle to talk with people about things, anything. Others of us don't have a problem with talking. It's pride that's the problem. We know that if we tell somebody that we're Christians and that they need to believe the gospel, they're likely going to think that we're silly, maybe even that we're stupid, that we're, that, that we're judgmental, which is one of the worst things in this culture that you can be, judgmental. We're going to be telling them that these truths are true and that if they don't believe them, that... that they're rejecting the one true God and that this is the only way to be saved. And that comes across judgmental to people, not loving as we aim to be, and they might reject us. So out of pride, not out of shyness, but out of pride, we refrain from sharing the gospel. For all of these reasons and so many more, we could probably come up if we brainstorm together with five or ten, maybe twenty more, we can make a really good, solid case for why evangelism, though it's good, though it's right, is not for us. It's for other Christians, just not our thing. But then we open the Bible and it destroys our so-called really good case for not evangelizing. Because no matter how hard we try, if we're reading the Bible and we're seeking to obey it, we can't get around evangelism. There's simply no dismissing or avoiding it. There's just so many passages in God's word that call us either directly or indirectly to evangelize. They imply evangelism among God's people. 
They're the obvious ones like the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, in which the Lord commands his disciples to go and make disciples. Now, before you can become a disciple, what do you need? You need to hear the gospel. You, you, can't, you can't be a disciple if you don't believe the gospel. And so, uh, discipleship necessitates evangelism. We have to first tell people, hey, there's a God in heaven. And he made you. And you, are, you were born a rebel and you have chosen to be a rebel against this God who made you. You're at war with him. You don't think so? Well, that's what the Bible says. But God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to pay for your sin. And the way he did that is he lived a perfect sinless life. He is the God-man. And he went to the cross to pay for your sins. And because he paid for your sins and then God raised him from the dead, not only can your sins be forgiven, but you can be reconciled to God if you trust in him. And you can have life now and forever. And you need to respond to that message. You need to trust in Jesus. And it's only when somebody responds to that message the right way, by repenting, turning from their sin, and trusting in Jesus, can they be a disciple. So discipleship necessitates evangelism. There's also the book of Acts, which records how after Pentecost, the disciples went from city to city, sharing the good news about God and how God worked mightily through their evangelistic efforts. They weren't perfect. They had struggles. They had issues. They had problems. But God blessed their evangelistic efforts, and the church grew and grew and grew. And we, brothers and sisters, are a product of that evangelistic effort. There are other very familiar passages like 1 Peter 3.15, which calls persecuted Christians to honor Christ the Lord by always being prepared to give the reason for the hope that is in you. Then there's the passage that I read to you in Romans 10.15, which talks not only about feet, but how faith comes by hearing. Just a few verses later, the section somewhat ends with faith comes from hearing. You've got to hear the gospel. All these calls for evangelism. But there are also so many other less obvious passages that connect with evangelism, like the passages in the Old Testament that speak of Israel being a light to the nations, this light to the nations. Now, now, they weren't called to evangelize like we were. We see little glimpses. We see some Gentiles coming in, being God-fearers and trusting in, in Yahweh. But this, this Israel being light to the nations foreshadows the responsibility that God gives to the church in the New Testament. We see this in passages like 1 Peter 2.9, which state that the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that exists to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's a passage you might not go to and say, hey, evangelism, this just screams evangelism. But the end of that passage tells us, it gives us part of our mission. We are, we exist, church, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who are we proclaiming that to? A lost, dying, dark world. There's evangelism here. We can even go all the way back to creation and consider God's purpose in creating the world and making humans in his own image. If everything was made by God and for God, and it was, the Bible makes that clear, then those who are living apart from God with, without salvation in Christ are not living with or for the one that they were made by and the one that they were made for. So what do they need? They need the gospel. They need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear the good news about what God has done in and through his son to reconcile sinners like them to himself. You see, the Bible has so much to say about evangelism because 
Evangelism is so important to God. It needs to be a priority among God's people. But in light of its importance and the struggle that evangelism can be for many of us, I want to, to kind of put some balm, some, some, some healing ointment, I hope, on your heart. Because it's likely that as you think about evangelism, you are you're struggling. Because <laughs> you know that, that even if you're, you're more evangelistic than others, you, this is a struggle for you. Maybe you've dropped the ball. I want to read the first verse in this morning's passage because I think it's just what we need to hear as a church before we enter into this new series on evangelism. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Paul had an apostolic ministry given to him directly from God. And he's talking about that here. But I think there's something uniquely uh, appropriate for us to think about from this verse and apply to ourselves. We've been given a uh, a great ministry by the mercy of God. We get to proclaim the good news about Jesus to other people. That's a, that's a merciful act by God. These lips and those lips that you have been given by God get to say the most wonderful things about God to other people who desperately need to hear about God. That's, that's a merciful act on God's part. And we need to not lose heart. It is my hope that we would not lose heart when it comes to evangelism, church, that God would use this series to work into our hearts a, a greater desire for the lost that we know, those who are not trusting in Christ, the unbelievers around us and in our lives, to come to know Christ. And, and that through this series, and in, in a real tangible way, we would be better equipped to share the gospel so that our passion to share, the, share Christ would match with our actions. My goal, my hope, is that we would, we would grow as a church in, in the, the realm of evangelism. And, and what I mean by that is not that there would just be more programs. We're going to be starting a Christianity Explored class, and we've been really encouraging you to invite people to this class. And it's good. It's, it's a great vessel. It's a means by which we can evangelize. But the, the big goal that we have when it comes to evangelism as a church is, is not another program. It's not just uh, another method or idea. Those come and go. Some of them are really good. Some of them are not so good. The goal is that, that we would foster as a church a culture of evangelism where evangelism is, is, is somewhat natural. It's normal. Now notice I'm not saying easy because I really do believe that, that no matter the interaction, if we're really evangelizing, it's never going to be easy. There's a spiritual battle going on as we see in this text. There's, a, there's the God of this world, Satan, it's not a big G God. He's a false God that people, people are being controlled by, that are, that are enslaved by. He is at work and he has veiled their eyes. And yet, the one true triune God, he is at work. Unveiling eyes, as we see in this morning's passage. And my hope is that our church would, would grow in God-centered, loving, compassionate, biblical evangelism that we would truly have in this church a culture of evangelism. Now the format of this series of sermons is is going to be that of question and answer. We're going to ask and answer the five W's and the one H of evangelism. So if you're familiar with these, the what, who, where, when, why, Um, And then how, that's the one H. So in this first sermon, we'll answer the questions, 
what is evangelism and who should be evangelizing. Next week, we'll answer the question, why should we evangelize? So we'll deal with just that question. We, we thought about maybe putting that first, but we're going to start with what is evangelism. And then next week, we're going to get at what should motivate our evangelism. We'll talk a little bit about that this morning, but, but next week, that'll be the focus. What should be the motivating factors when we evangelize? The next, and finally, in the, the last sermon, we'll answer the where, when, and how of evangelism. So it'll be very practical, still theologically minded, and, and it won't be mainly about methods or a program, but getting at what it looks like to be a, a church that, that fosters a culture of evangelism and, and how we do that together. And so we begin with the first question. What is evangelism? The English word evangelism comes from the Greek word translated into English as good news or gospel. So it's a very familiar word in, in one sense. It's, it's kind of a made-up word, evangelism. It, we've, we've brought it in from the Greek into English. Gospel is the word that the ESV uses in 2 Corinthians 4.3 as the translation in the ESV, where we read this. And even if our gospel, that's good news, that's the same word translated in a different form as evangelism, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. This word evangelism literally means gospeling. I really like that. We're gospeling when we evangelize. So when we evangelize, that's what we're doing. We're sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. In his book, it's a short little red book. It's, it's a very helpful book. In his book, Evangelism, how the whole church speaks of Jesus, Max Stiles gives this definition of evangelism. Uh, I'll quote it, I'm sure, and it'll be brought up in, in other sermons. Uh, there are so many good books about evangelism. There's, again, so many not-so-helpful books, but there's so many good books, and, and I commend this one to you, Evangelism, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus. This is the definition that, that Stiles gives in his book. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. I believe this definition is clear, it's simple, it's helpful, and it's thoroughly biblical. And so I want to answer this question, what is evangelism, by looking at it closer together with 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6 in mind. So the first part of the definition, evangelism is teaching. Now, another word that could be used instead of teaching is proclaiming. And that's the word that Paul uses in verse 5 to describe what he's doing when he teaches the gospel. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, there are other words that we can find in the Bible used in connection with evangelism. Words like preaching, heralding, declaring, or announcing, and, and many others. And they're all making the, the same very important, essential, and necessary point. And they're making it clear. Evangelism requires the use of words. I, I know it's like, well, it's not earth-shattering, but, but we really need to get this clear. Evangelism requires the use of words. For evangelism to take place, certain truths need to be communicated. Vital information needs to be given. It needs to be taught, preached, heralded, declared, announced, proclaimed from one person or groups of people to another person or groups of people. 
If this doesn't take place, this exchange of information, then whatever we're doing, it's not evangelism. It might be good works. It might be nice things. You know, we, we, if we're, we're serving our neighbors, if we're living good lives, all of these things have a place. And in a few weeks, we'll talk about how they're like advertisements for us to share the gospel, that they help us to, one, not discredit our testimony and our ability to share the gospel. If, if, if our lives don't line up with the gospel, there's going to be a problem. You believe that, and yet look at what you, you, how you treat your family, how you speak to your wife, how you, how you treat your kids, how you discipline, how you cheat on your tax. All these, all these things matter, but they're not evangelism. And yet there's this popular quote that kind of has this this cyclical lifespan where it, it, it comes up and it gets popular and people start throwing it around and then it gets addressed and then it kind of dies out and then it comes back. And it's sometimes attributed to Francis of Assisi and it summarizes what some Christians have made their philosophy of evangelism and it contradicts with evangelism is teaching. The quote is, preach the gospel at all times Use words if necessary. Now maybe you've heard this quote, maybe you've used it, maybe you've, you've um, you know, gotten it tattooed on your arm. I hope you haven't because I'm about to show you why this is not a helpful quote. Uh, and if you've used it before, I don't mean to, you know, we, we say things sometimes, especially these cliches that kind of feel good, that, that don't really offend, and we kind of adopt them, and, and we don't really think about what they're really saying. There are two problems with this quote one is minor and the other is major. The first, the minor problem, is that there is no evidence that Francis of Assisi ever said or wrote, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. In fact, it would be very odd for Francis of Assisi to have said or written this because one of the things that Francis was most famous for, most known for, was his preaching with words. He would go, and, and one biography, biographer tells us that he would go sometimes to five different villages on a Sunday and preach the Bible using not just hands and not just standing there and, and doing nice things, but actually using his words to teach the Bible. But the major problem with this quote is a theological problem. You can't, by definition, preach, proclaim, teach, herald, announce the gospel without words. I want you to think about it like this. Here's maybe some helpful illustrations of how this is really kind of just silly. It would be like Bob Euchre, you turning on 6.20 a.m. so that you could hear Bob Euchre, the famous, the legendary Bob Euchre, who's got a seat named after him in the park, at, the Mil at Miller Park. It'd be like Bob Euchre doing the Brewers play-by-play -play without speaking. Turn on 620. Okay, I want to hear that familiar voice. Tell me what's going on in the Brewer game. Nothing. Because Bob Euchre's decided that he's going to announce the game without words. Or turning to the evening news, it would be like the meteorologist giving the weekly forecast by trying to act it out. You know, this is, this is kind of put, you know, it'd be like watching a mime. Now, you might get the gist of what's going on here, but but there'd be something off about that. He wouldn't be giving you the, the weather report. It'd be something else. You'd be watching, you, maybe you're at the circus or something. It would be like you picking up your Sunday morning newspaper, sitting down with a nice cup of coffee, ready to read the news, opening it up and seeing no words 
written on any of the pages, printed on any of the pages, just pictures. Now your little kids might, if you have little kids, might think this is great, this is how the newspaper should be, but you would say something is wrong here. Because news, whether it's about the brewers or the weather or you know, what's going on in the world, news needs to be communicated. And the gospel is truly news. Really, really, really good news about what God has done in Christ. And people need to hear it with words. We cannot do the gospel. We cannot live the gospel. We can live in light of the gospel. We can live our lives in accordance to the gospel. But God has done the gospel. Jesus is the one who lived it. And it's not our job to do the gospel. It's our privilege, brothers and sisters, to open our mouths and tell people the best news that anybody could ever hear about what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. It's our privilege. We are God's chosen announcers. Some of us have chosen Bob Euchre to tell us about the brewers. God has chosen his people, every single Christian, to announce what he has done in Christ for sinners. We are his news anchors, his reporters, his royal messengers sent out to declare the triumphant victory of our triune God over sin and death for all who trust in Jesus. And the second part of the definition tells us what we are to be teaching or proclaiming when we evangelize. Again, it's simple, but it needs to be fixed. It needs to be clear. The gospel. That's what we are to teach when we evangelize. In verse 4 of this morning's passage, Paul describes the gospel as being the glory of Christ. I love that. The gospel is the glory of Christ. The gospel is not first and foremost about you. The gospel is about Jesus. It It displays the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It tells us not how good we are, not how lovable we were. It tells us how good God is, how loving God is, how gracious God is. It depicts the attributes of God. And then Paul goes on to say that what he proclaims, what he's teaching, is Jesus Christ as Lord. That's, that's probably the shortest summary that you could have of the gospel. But often, you know, Paul goes deeper than that. And his goal here isn't to say this is, this is ultimately the, the gospel that I proclaim. He's summarizing it. Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a, a what I would call a, a fuller description, but it's still really short. It's surprisingly short, and it's a summary of, of the gospel that Paul proclaimed, and it's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. So when somebody says, well, what is the gospel? You know, there, you could say a lot of things. There, there's, there's a lot to say. We could spend, we could, we could have a, a year-long study on what is the gospel, but in the shortest form, when Paul summarizes the gospel that he proclaims, this is the summary that he gives. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, the word, the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. First two verses, he hasn't shared it yet. His gospel is summarized in these two verses. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This passage contains what we might say is the bare minimum when it comes to teaching the gospel. 
The two bookends that are at the very center of the gospel are right here. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for our sins and the resurrection of Jesus Christ by the Father from the dead. These two truths must be present when we evangelize. This doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to go deep into both of these truths, but a person needs to truly understand who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the promised Messiah of God, the Lord himself. He's not just a nice guy. He's not just a guy who came to improve someone's life. He is God. And they need to know what God has accomplished through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bare, bare bones minimum gospel. This has got to be a part of it when we evangelize. Now there are so many different ways that we can share the gospel from different methods or tools. I was trained with the Romans Road in college through crew and the four spiritual laws. Used those for a long time, but, but uh, there are so many different ones. And as long as it lines up with scripture and it gets at the most important climaxes, highlights, it, it, it's a good resource. It's a good way to share the gospel. It needs to line up with what scripture says and it needs to contain enough for a person to have a basic understanding of the gospel. Again, there's so many different outlines and ways to emphasize, clarify, or explain the good news of Jesus. But one that I have gravitated towards is God-man-Christ response. God-man-Christ response. This isn't something that I've come up with. Uh, it's actually, uh, it, it's in the, the book, What is the Gospel? It's, it's in Pact Fuller there. It's a nine marks book. It's also been made into a track that, that I use personally. I, if I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, I'll, I have a stack of these in my car. And after I verbally and talk through, talk through the gospel as best as I can with somebody, if I think it's appropriate, if I don't think it would be weird, and, and it would make it like a sales pitch feel, then I'll say, hey, why don't you read this sometime and I'd love to talk with you further. So this is just one, but I think it's a very helpful one. Another one that I've used before is creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It ends up getting at the same things, the, 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 the main important truths that somebody must hear and, and understand in order to know God and trust in Christ. It, it has that bigger picture of, of what God is doing from the beginning to the end in mind when God, man, Christ's response really zeroes in on, on the person, though it, hopefully, if you're sharing this uh, and, and, and making it clear, it's, it's not just about them being saved. Now, we're going to get more into the specific of, of, of this one in future weeks, but I just want to use it. I want to use it as a summary of the gospel that we are to teach when we evangelize. So, God, these types of statements need to be shared when we're evangelizing. God is the creator of all things. He is perfectly holy, worthy of all worship, and will punish sin. Second, man. All people, though created good, have become sinful by nature. From birth, all people are alienated from God, hostile to God, and subject to the wrath of God. I want to just take a, a moment's break. When I'm trying to evangelize, when I'm attempting with all of my heart to share the gospel, I'm not reading off something. I've committed these truths to memory. I might say them a little bit differently. I might use a different scripture passage here or there depending on the conversation. I'm ready to, to go hopefully wherever the Lord uh, leads us. I'm not sticking to a script. But this, this outline is, is a way for us to make sure that we, we clarify the gospel when we evangelize. The third one, Christ. Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, 
died on the cross to bear God's wrath in the place of all who would believe in him and rose from the grave in order to give his people eternal life. Then a response. God calls everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and trust in Christ in order to be saved. Though so much more could be said than this in in this brief summary, there's enough here to provide a, a helpful, clear, and I think good summary of the gospel so that somebody can hear these things and know about and ultimately, by God's grace, come to trust in Jesus Christ and turn from their sin. And this brings us to the third and final part of this definition with the aim to persuade. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. This last part of the definition captures our hope or desire in evangelism. We don't just teach people about Jesus for educational purposes. This isn't like some um, announcement that we're making just to inform people. Hey, just so you know, by the way, if you're interested, I just want to kind of share some, some interesting facts with you. And unlike news anchors or announcers, we don't tell people the good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to, to make money or to advance in our career. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor, you're an elder, you're a ministry leader, whatever your role is, the, the motivation is not money or fame, at least not our fame. Our hope is that God would graciously use our evangelism as imperfect and as haphazardly as we might make our way through the gospel as a means by which they would hear the gospel and he would save a sinner from eternal punishment and reconcile them now and forever to himself by granting them repentance and faith in Christ. We're aiming at something. There's a goal. There's a, there's, there's a, a, a desired result when we share the gospel. The word persuade is really helpful because it captures the seriousness of the matter. We're not just sharing Jesus with non-Christians indifferent about their response. It's not as if we, we want to just sit down with people and just kind of run them through the, the sales pitch. Hey, just so you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Oh yeah, but you're of a sin problem. Oh, and, and the, the answer to that sin problem is, is Jesus, so you need to believe in him. Oh, you don't want to? Okay, next, next, next. No, no, we need to be emotionally invested. We need to be reminded as we're, as we're praying, as we're engaging, if, even in the middle of these conversations, if this person rejects Christ, either now or, or sometime before, if they don't turn to Christ before they die, the reality is that they're going to hell. And that needs to be heavy on our hearts. We're not going through the motions. We're not checking off a box. We're not making ourselves feel better because we know that we're obeying the scriptures. Although, when you share the gospel, when you evangelize, there's a wonderful blessing. Even when it doesn't go well, even when people don't respond the way that we want them to, you know that you're obeying God. (laughs) Father, please. I just want to do what you are calling me to do and you call me to evangelize. And so we go and we share the gospel with neighbors and friends winsomely, lovingly, wisely so that it's not coming off as a sales pitch because it's not a sales pitch. It's an announcement about God. We're not simply regurgitating the right facts, quoting scripture like we've got something to prove. Hey, guess what? I was first in my class in Awanas. Let me prove it to you. That's not the motivation and I wasn't. When we evangelize, we are to compassionately, lovingly, wholeheartedly seek to show them the Christ of the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, if we're committed to evangelism, there's going to be times where there are tears in our eyes. Not, not manufactured, 
not because we're just trying to, to, to cry so that they see how serious we are, but because our hearts are heavy for the lost person that we're sharing the gospel with. We are to match the same heart that Jesus has in Mark 6.34 for the people who he describes as being sheep without a shepherd. Those who don't know Christ, who leave this world without the, the saving work of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ, they're going to hell. They're going to receive the wrath that they deserve forever and ever. And we desperately want people to be reconciled to God through the only means by which that is possible, Jesus So depending on the conversation, our relationship, how open and willing they seem to be to dig deeper, we might plead with them. It's it's not weird. You dig in deep. You've been talking for a long time. You've built this relationship. You're close. You know you have that relational buildup where where you you, you can continue to talk even after you've had a pretty intense conversation about the gospel. Plead with them. No, no, you don't understand. You have to respond to this gospel reality. You are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior is glorious, and he's good, and he is loving, and he is Jesus. There's times to plead, and there's other times where, where you might say something like, friend, I truly hope that you'll seriously consider the gospel and what it requires. And maybe you hand him a track and say, please read this. And then you say, I- I'd love to, to follow up this conversation with a meeting over coffee. And if they don't like coffee, well, then you've got another thing to talk to them about, right? You evangelize them first with Jesus and you say, no, what are you not drinking coffee for? This is crazy. No, if, if you want to drink tea, that's fine, but we need to get together and talk more about this. So please read this track. Read the Gospel of Mark. Let's talk. Let's get together. It's going to look differently depending on your personality, their personality, how the relationship is, uh, how close you are, how things are going, whether the Spirit seems to be opening up their heart and you, you can go further. We're to be invested, committed. There is a hope when we evangelize, a real desire, an aim that they would truly turn from their sin and trust in Christ. But the phrase aim to persuade also captures another important element of faithful evangelism that we need to remember, and sadly, the church has often forgotten. In 2 Corinthians 4, 2, Paul writes, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Christians are to aim to persuade unbelievers. But these verses in 2 Corinthians 4 remind us that we are to do so without being disgraceful. In the context of evangelism, this this is going to mean that we are not to belittle, demean, call them names. Even among ourselves, after we talk and and we share, oh yeah, I got to share the gospel with this person, but they're so stupid. That, That can never come across our lips and should never enter into our minds partly because that means that we've forgotten the gospel ourselves. We were not smart enough. We were not intelligent enough. We are not cute or precious or good enough for God to save us, and yet he did. So even if they're mean to us, even if they call us names, even if they say we're stupid in front of tons of people, we must not be disgraceful. We also must not use underhanded ways or practice cunning. 
That is, we must not use tricks or try to manipulate people's emotions into becoming Christians. No, we have emotions. We are, we are passionate about them coming to know Christ. We are committed to the gospel, and that's going to cause, and it should naturally cause us to get emotional, but it's, it's not about us setting the mood just right, lighting the candles. It's not about us just hitting the, the chorus on a certain uh, song over and over and over and over and over and over again and, and me getting up here and just badgering and attacking and, and scaring people into hell. Or I'm sorry, they're already going to hell, scaring, trying to scare people into heaven. It's not going to work. We can't do that. We must not also water down, tamper with God's word trying to make the gospel easier to believe or softer to modern minds. The gospel, truly proclaimed, real evangelism is going to offend. It's going to. It's not that we're aiming to offend. It's not that we should intentionally offend. It's that unregenerate man or woman cannot enjoy hearing this reality they're going to hell apart from trusting in Jesus Christ, turning from their sin. That's not a pleasant thought. It doesn't matter how, how, how you say it. If you say it, it's going to on some level offend. Not us offending, the gospel offending. And we must not, as Romans 1.16 reminds us, be ashamed of the gospel. If it doesn't offend, it's likely that we're preaching a man-centered gospel that will confuse and distort the truth about what it means to become a Christian. The gospel is not, hey, you're just missing one little piece in your life. You got all these things. You got the nice house, you got the nice family, you got the great job, you got all the money in the bank, but, but there's just this one little piece and it's just the corner piece. No, no, this is the puzzle. This is the piece. Jesus, the gospel. And so when we bring a man-centered gospel that says, you know, you just got to pray this prayer. You just got to, you know, try Jesus. No, you don't try Jesus. He's the Lord of lords, the King of kings. You submit, you trust in, you bow down, you worship him. And so we can't tamper with God's word and the hard truths that come when we share the gospel. I've heard it said often, and I, I've embraced this philosophy when it comes to evangelism and the church. What you win people with is what you win them to. So church brother, sister, church member, if you win somebody with a man-centered, watered-down, pragmatic gospel, you know what they're going to want more of? That. They're going to want cheap grace. And you know what? They're not going to be prepared for the difficult realities that come for the Christian who is following Jesus. They're, they're not going to have a category in their minds for sanctification. They're not going to be able to understand why God is bringing trials and struggles and, and difficulties into their life. So they're going to be confused. So you do them no favor, you do the church no favor, and you ultimately confuse the gospel. Evangelism is not a sales pitch. It's not an argument or a debate. Evangelism is not getting certain results, though we do hope and we aim for a certain result. And it's not about doing everything that we can to get somebody to pray a prayer, to raise their hand, to sign a card, to come to the front of the church or the altar. That's not evangelism. Now, God might work through some of those means, and many of us in our testimonies, he did. He graciously chose to work, but it wasn't those means that brought somebody into the kingdom of God. It was Jesus Christ. We cannot make someone believe and we can't make a spiritually dead person come alive. That's why we can't. 
Paul addresses this very thing, and this is why it's such a good passage to have in our minds as we think about evangelism. He addresses it in verses three through six. So look at them again with me. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We don't change the message to try to make someone believe because even if we change the message, it won't work. We might get someone to pray that prayer, walk down the aisle, raise a hand or fill out the card, but it's only God who brings a spiritually dead sinner to life in Christ. It's only the Holy Spirit who can unbind the eyes of the unbeliever and ultimately free them from slavery to sin. It's only God who can grant them understanding of the reality of their sinful state before God and bring them to Christ. We are just the messengers called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ winsomely, lovingly, clearly. We don't have the right. How dare we, church, change, distort, confuse, water down God's gospel? In evangelism, we aim to persuade, not force, not coerce, because as 2 Corinthians 4 teaches us, only God can open their eyes, only God saves. And it's so important that we have this definition, this understanding of evangelism, that evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade in our minds as we think about our own evangelism. It's so freeing. Brother, sister, you are the messenger. It's not your It's not your message, it's God's message. So share it winsomely, lovingly, appropriately, in the right way, depending on the circumstance and how the conversation is going. And we'll talk more about that, but you gotta share it. And this brings us to the second question, and don't worry, the answer is very quick. It'll take far less time to answer this question than it did the first. Who should evangelize? Who should evangelize? If you are a Christian, I think you know the answer. You. You should be evangelizing. You, me, and all those who have been redeemed by God should be evangelizing. Christian, evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade, and it is a privilege. Our hope in going through this series, again, is that our passion for evangelism would overflow so that more and more people would know and worship the only God who can save them, the God that they were made for. And let's pray. God, we do pray that you would overcome the hardness in our heart that sometimes exists towards those who are outside of your people that the the first thought that we would have when we hear about uh, a non-Christian, an unbeliever who is in rebellion against you is, is, is not how they cause us struggle or how they make things more difficult in the world, but that they need Jesus. They desperately need to know Christ, trust in him, turn from their sin, and live for him. Father, we pray that you would increase our evangelistic fervor as a church, 
that we would truly have a culture of winsome, loving, biblical evangelism in this church. That we would enjoy evangelism. That though it will be hard, we would trust you to use your gospel coming out of our lips with lots of prayer, lots of love, lots of discernment to do what only you can do. Save people. And that you would use our time considering evangelism so that in the coming weeks and months, years and decades, more and more people in this community and throughout the world would come to know Christ and worship him with us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.